I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Mann. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Hitting where they hope it will hurt. As the U.S. and its allies impose new sanctions on Russia, longtime anti-Putin campaigner Bill Browder tells us that to really get serious, world leaders need to start talking about what he calls the two elephants in the sanctions room. Trouble spots amid a global measles surge. Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, is advising Canadians to check your vaxes before you travel. She tells us what has her most worried. Out in the cold. An advocate for asylum seekers says the death of a Kenyan woman who waited outside a shelter for hours in sub-zero temperatures should be a wake-up call for Canadians. Not exactly water under the bridge. After over two weeks, Winnipeg gets its massive sewage leak under control. But one city councillor says a long-term solution could take decades. Bomb away. Thousands are evacuated from their homes in Plymouth, England after an unexploded Second World War bomb is found in a garden. A local historian tells us it's probably not the only one. And imitation is the sincerest form of parrotry. A British wildlife park gambles that putting foul-mouthed parrots in with well-spoken parrots will clean up their language. And so far, staff swear that it's working. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that scolds, if you're not parrot of the solution, you're parrot of the problem. On Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden referred to Russian President Vladimir Putin in a speech as a crazy SOB. The Kremlin was infuriated. And today, it's presumably even angrier because President Biden just imposed hundreds of new sanctions on Russia. He made the announcement on the anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and one week after the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. We can't walk away now. And that's what Putin is betting on. He's betting on we're going to walk away. That's why I'm announcing more than 500 new sanctions in response in response to Putin's brutal war of conquest, in response to uh, Alexei Navalny's death. Because make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Alexei's death. Yesterday, I met with Alexei's wife and daughter in California. Alexei was an incredibly courageous man. His family is courageous as well. I assured them his legacy will continue to live around the world. And we in the United States are going to continue to ensure that Putin pays the price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. U.S. President Joe Biden announcing fresh sanctions against Russia today in Washington. Canada and the EU announced new sanctions as well. Bill Browder has spent years campaigning for sanctions against the Putin regime. Mr. Browder is an activist and the CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management. He was also a friend of Alexei Navalny. We reached him in London. 
Bill Browder, we heard Joe Biden a moment ago uh, promising that Vladimir Putin will pay the price for his aggression abroad and his repression at home, including the death of Alexei Navalny. How much of an impact do you think today's sanctions will really have? Well, the sanctions today are, are a good good sanctions list, but um, it, it's it's all incremental. It doesn't. Uh, there, there's really huge. There's two huge elephants in the room. Um, of, and two huge policies that we could pursue, which could change everything, which we haven't done yet. The first is that while we're doing all these 500 sanctions, at the same time, every day Russia sells around $500 million worth of oil outside of Russia. And every day they spend that $500 million on bombs and weapons and guns and, and soldiers to kill Ukrainians. And so, And we haven't touched that. We're, we're not banning Russia's sale of oil to the rest of the world. And as long as we don't, they're going to continue to get that money. They're going to continue to kill Ukrainians. And then we're going to continue having to fund Ukraine to fight back. And so it's kind of crazy that we're just leaving that one untouched. And and I've got nothing against the sanctions that have been done. They're very smart sanctions. They they hit a lot of a lot of weapons manufacturers and, and middlemen and enablers and, and uh and various um, military projects, but this huge, huge elephant in the room is just le- left untouched, and 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 that as long as we continue to leave it untouched, then then, then that's a problem. And you the said there's a thing, second action. Yes, what is that? Yeah, the, the, the second thing is is that there's 300 billion dollars of Russian money, Russian government money, that's sitting in our accounts in the West right now that we froze at the beginning of the war. And we're all sitting here struggling, trying to approve budgets for more money for Ukraine, which they desperately need, and they're, they're not getting. And we're sitting on, on top of this Russian money, and Russia could pay for, for the Ukraine's defense. And so it seems to me that if we really want to punish Putin, we should confiscate that $300 billion, hand it to Ukraine, and then find a way to embargo Russia's oil. Then we're talking. Then we're in a situation when Russia really, you know, they'd last for another nine months or a year before they'd run out of money to do this war. We saw you speaking with leaders at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe this week and promoting this idea of this asset seizure. Um, You're referring to it as the Navalny Act. Uh, What kind of support do you envision getting and and what kind of support have you received so far? Do you think this, this is going to be something you can sell? Well, it's something that, that I've been working on for two years, and it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, Putin has caused a trillion dollars of damage to Ukraine. We're sitting on $300 billion of his money. I mean, it just makes simple moral sense. It makes financial sense, and it makes political sense. But the only the only problem is that it's it's sort of un, it's unprecedented in the sense that no one... We've taken reparations from countries after wars are over, but we've never taken reparations from countries in the middle of the war because... Generally, after the war is over, they, they can like make transfers of money, but they, they would new, never do that in the middle of the war. But we don't have to have them transfer any money. We're holding their money, and we should just take it. So what's holding and, up and this so, push? I mean, you, you, you say that these are elephants in the room. Clearly, leaders in Europe and Washington, and here in Canada, too, know that that money is frozen. Why are they not choosing to, to transfer its use to Ukraine? Well, the, 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 main, the main reason is nobody wants to be doing it by themselves. So this is something that has to be done in unison at the same time. Because if you do it by yourself, then 
you know, if the U.S. does it by themselves, then people will say, well, they should, you know, people in the future will keep their money in the euro, not in the dollar. So everyone's got to do it together. And then to get all these countries of the G7 to do it together um, is complicated because all it takes is one country's, one lawyer in one country's ministry to say, ah, I've got a question about this or, you know, I'm a little worried about that and everything gets held up. And so that's kind of where we are right now. The, the U.S. Has, has got a piece of legislation it's called the Repo Act. Which, um, which is money basically talking about confiscating Russia's central bank reserves in the U.S. Um, David Cameron, the, the British Foreign Secretary, is now openly and, and I would say stridently talking about doing this from the, from the U.K. side. Um, and, and then we have the EU, which is actually holding on to, I think, about $220 billion of the $300 billion of reserves and and they're kind of twiddling their thumbs and the lawyers are getting involved and they can't come to agreement among themselves and everyone's a bit worried and so on and so forth and and so they're the ones that are sort of holding it up and and hopefully um hopefully that they'll overcome that in the same way as the, as as the Europeans overcame their reluctance to supply tanks and long-range missiles and F16s to the Ukrainians you are calling today for Western governments to do whatever they can to see the release of another Putin enemy, uh, Vladimir Karamurza, who is also held captive. What do you think they can actually do to get him free? So Vladimir Karamurza is a close friend of mine, a, a political ally who helped get the Magnitsky Act passed in many countries. The Russians hate the Magnitsky Act, and as a result, they hate Vladimir Karamurza. They tried to kill him twice with poison in 2015 and 2017. And we went back to Russia to protest the war in 2022. He went on CNN. He called Putin a war criminal and a murderer. Twelve hours later, he was arrested, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison for his, effectively for his work on the Magnitsky Act and for opposing Putin. He's now suffering very badly in a Siberian prison, like Alexei Navalny was. He's in solitary confinement. I think he will die in prison, maybe in the same way as, as Navalny died. I, we don't know. And we're terrified of that. And what the West can do is, um, you know, it comes back to these historic prisoner swaps that were done back in the day for, with Soviet dissidents, where, you know, it's like the Bridge of Spies. We find mm-hmm. some spies that they want back, and we swap them. And that's what needs to be done with Vladimir so he doesn't end up suffering the same fate as Alexei Navalny. And it's just terrifying for his friends, for his wife, Yevgenia, and for and for the Western world to, to watch as, as Putin is snuffing out his political opponents. And we don't want to see that happen to Vladimir or others like Ilya Yashin, Alexei Gornov, and, and many others who are sitting in prison, basically sitting ducks for Vladimir Putin. As you see, you know, what happened to your friend, Alexei Navalny, and as you see the Russians making some gains uh, in Ukraine, do you find it hard to keep up hope? Well, you know, everybody gets either too pessimistic when things are going badly or too optimistic when things are going well. Um, I, I, um, I think that, that that's, um, you know, the, this, will, this will carry on. The Ukrainians are not going to give up. The Ukrainians have enormous um, motivation to fight off the Russians. And, you know, one way or another, they will continue to do so. And now, of course, it's painful to watch as they give up some territory. It's even more painful to watch that the, the uh, Ukrainians losing soldiers. Um, and, it's all, and the most painful thing to watch is civilians being, being killed. But but the Ukrainians are not going to give up and, and, um, and the Russians aren't going to get what they want. But um, it's going to cost a lot on both sides and, and most painfully on the Ukrainian side. 
Bill Browder, it's very good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bill Browder is an activist and the CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. We reached him in London. temperature never got above freezing last Saturday in Mississauga, Ontario. So it was an extremely uncomfortable day for an asylum seeker from Kenya who was forced to wait outside a shelter in the cold for six hours before being allowed to spend the night in the lobby. The next day she collapsed and later died in hospital. It's still unclear if the wait in the cold led to her death. Last fall, an asylum seeker died in a tent outside a shelter in Peel region. Kizito Musabimana is an advocate for asylum seekers and an executive director of the Rwandan Canadian Healing Centre. He's been looking into her case. We reached him in Mississauga. Kizito, are you any closer today to finding out why this Kenyan woman died after she had to wait so long to be led into this shelter? Yes. Since Sunday, we've uh, been talking to the community and, and people close to her family and gathered a lot of information, including the fact that uh, she had checked in at the shelter around 1 p.m., but was kept outside, did not actually get checked in until 8 p.m. So she spent all those hours outside. And as you know, on Saturday, February 17th, it was really cold on that day. Uh, we know that when she was checked in, she only was able to sleep in the lobby because there was no beds at the shelter. And we also know that she passed away on Sunday afternoon uh, after being taken to the hospital. Um, she had actually, previous to that, she had fainted in the shower. That's what we're being told. She, she had fainted in the shower. So between 2.30 and her, her death at 4.36 uh, is when uh, that would have occurred. That's when she would have collapsed. What have you learned about why she had to wait outside the shelter for so long? Our community leaders try to speak to the shelter. Uh, we have yet to speak to anyone at the shelter, like an official at the shelter who can tell us uh, why. Our understanding is that that's, this is not the first time, that this is something that actually happens. Uh, even on the day of uh, when she had to wait outside, she wasn't the only one that was waiting outside that long. So it seems it's a normal practice at the shelter that uh, there is that waiting period. Uh, we don't know why. Um, it, it was that long, and that's um, it's a good question that I think we we all want to know. What have you learned about this woman, uh, her journey to Canada, her background, how she got here? So we know uh, that she came to Canada on Thursday. Uh, some of her community people took her in for those two to three two days before she was she was able to check into the shelter. Back home, she lives uh, four children. We know she has a mom that has been communicating with the, uh, with the group that we were working with to, to, to organize the press conference today. Um, we know she's a widow. Um, so that's so far what we know. Um, we are now working with the community to help send her, her, buddy, her, her buddy back home so they have, uh, the family can say goodbye. You mentioned how cold it was that day. Um, this is a person who's only been in Canada for a few days. You know, just when you think of, of her being outside for all of those hours, what do you imagine it was like? What, what are your own thoughts about that situation? 
yeah, it's this happening. Um, I can't, and, and I try to imagine that, imagine her waiting outside thinking this is the country I came to. Um, I thought it was different from what I was running from, and this is what I'm having to deal with. I honestly cannot tell you. Um, it, it's just it's disheartening, uh, disappointing. Um, but for I, I feel for her, her family um, and the community, but for all of us, because one thing we've come to know um, as Canadians, uh, I've been here since twenty uh, since two thousand. I cannot imagine having to come to Canada and have to deal with this. I don't think at that time we treated people who are coming and seeking asylum the way we are treating these Africans. Mm -hmm. So what she would have went through, um, only God knows. You you have said that you want to see a a really comprehensive investigation into what happened to this woman. Do you have reason to believe that the weight in the cold outside the shelter may have contributed to her death? Absolutely. Uh, It's not, we don't know the official death, but staying outside for hours um, as a person who was just coming to Canada, she was in Canada for two days. Um, she's coming from a warm climate. Now she's in, in minus six to minus eight. And then she's invited in, but she's having to sleep in the lobby. Who knows on what? It's only speculation because we don't know yet the cause of death. Right. But definitely have reasons to believe that that contributed to her to her death. You were at the shelter today. What did you find? Do you, do you feel that, are you seeing that people still have to wait outside? What was that experience like? No, we didn't see any, anyone waiting outside. But on the other side, you have an entire campment right there. Um, there is, a, there is a, a lot of tents that are out there uh, where a, a lot of homeless population, a, a lot of homeless Canadians are. Uh, staying in some of them uh, might be uh, indigenous there's definitely uh, these are regular canadian uh, uh, folks that are there um they were there today uh, they they were also frustrated as we are uh, for many different reasons but they are there this at least you could count 10 tents and these are large tents mm-hmm. and they are, they are literally sleeping outside in winter and that's where they are calling home and they, at the very least you would think the people who are in, in charge, the government and others, would go there and build a huge tent, put some tiles, put some seats, put some, you know, put some beds, like actually meet them where they are and give them support even there. But no, that's not happening. It's just you got a bunch of small tents here and there. But really, when you think about it, look at all the funds we've spent on so many different things and tell me that we don't have the money to take care of our own, our own unhoused Canadian folks. Forget about the Africans that are coming in. Just the Canadian folks that are stranded on the streets, that alone is just something for our leaders to say, you know what, we can do better. You said that you are hoping to get this woman's body uh, repatriated back to her family in Kenya. How is that effort going? We are obviously turning to uh, outlets and people like you to help us uh, share the message. We've had uh, great support from the community when it comes to, to coming in and volunteering their time and, and effort to, to, to help this, uh, to help this effort. Um, and, and we are thankful to the Kenyan community, but also we are standing in solidarity with the community saying we have to do more. As, as, as a society, as a Canadian society, we have to, to be better for our brothers and sisters, both Africans, black, but also the homeless population. The federal government cannot wash its hands 
the municipalities can never wash their hands because everybody is responsible and everybody needs to do their part. Kazito Musibi Mana, thank you very much for telling us what's going on there. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Kazito Musabimana is an advocate for asylum seekers and an executive director of the Rwandan Canadian Healing Centre. We reached him in Mississauga, Ontario. It's been eight decades since the Second World War, during which bombs rained down on the city of Plymouth, England. And today, one of those bombs made an unusually quiet journey through the city. Residents celebrated after an unexploded 500-kilogram bomb was successfully removed from a backyard where it was discovered on Tuesday. This afternoon, it was transported by military convoy and taken out to sea to be detonated. Chris Robinson is a historian in Plymouth. Chris Robinson, how are you and others in Plymouth feeling tonight now that this bomb has been removed safely and taken out to sea? I think there's a massive sense of relief, a relief from frustration for some people and a relief because they were genuinely concerned if they lived particularly close to the route that the bomb was taken out of or close to the house where the bomb was found. Why frustration? Was it just inconvenient to have this happen? Uh, well, I, th- I think a lot of people were bemused by the fact that this was an 80-year-old piece of ordnance uh, that hadn't gone off and didn't particularly understand that there was still huge potential for it to go off, although the local authorities did a, a brilliant job of uh, explaining to everybody and calming everybody and providing facilities for them to spend time at whilst they were asked pleasantly, politely to leave their homes. How did this bomb removal team manage to get the the device through the streets and out to sea today? What was involved? They put it on the back of a low-loader army truck, and the the truck had uh, a very large number of sandbags, um, large, very large sandbags on the back of it, because the problem was that they couldn't afford to risk too much vibration or sudden movement. So everything had to be very slow, very gentle, um, because vibration might have set the device off. And as an expert uh, testified, the fuse might not be particularly good now, but the potential for an explosion, the material inside the bomb, was still likely to be quite um, explosive. Thankfully, it did not go off. Had it done so, how big a blast might we have seen? I suspect not more than maybe a handful of properties, maybe two or three. It's quite a heavily built-up area where the bomb was found. But looking at what's happened previously, and there are a number of infills all over Plymouth, most uh, any one high explosive took out, unless it was one of the big 1,000-kilo bombs, would have been just two or three properties. I wonder what's gone through your mind as you've watched all of this unfold through the week. Well, uh, there were so many bombs dropped on Plymouth. Per capita, it was the worst bombed city in England. They reckon about a quarter of a million incendiaries fell on Plymouth and thousands of high-explosive bombs, many of which didn't go off. There was one classic raid towards the end of the war, Helen, when uh, I think 70 to 80 bombs were dropped on Plymouth, and they say about half of them didn't go off. 
Uh, and th- there's a story about that maybe the German munition factory workers weren't too keen on what they were doing and sensing that the war was uh, heading towards an end uh, were manufacturing bombs that they knew wouldn't go off, although uh, presumably the people that were running the factories had no idea that they had this kind of uh, subterfuge going on. But clearly um, th- there was an issue. Uh, hundreds of bombs were defused at the time, and it was a relatively simple um, affair. Just to, to a small diffuser would be applied, and you'd wait maybe five minutes for the fuse to sort of clear and then the bomb was safe to handle. Although there were a couple of very tragic incidents during the war when uh, a bomb would fall, uh, particularly one uh, thousand kilo bomb fell through two floors of a, the police station and the crew that took it away to detonate it on the moor were, were killed when uh, when the bomb exploded on the back of a lorry. Mm. And that was by no means the only incident like it during the war. So these guys were to be uh, admired and respected, really, because it was a very dangerous job. You say this was the the primary target for these bombs. Why was that? Was it because it was a a naval centre? Plymouth is, I believe, the only town city in the UK to have had the Royal Navy, the Army, the Royal Marines and the Royal Air Force in both world wars. So it's a, a prime target. Right. Now, this particular bomb was discovered in a backyard garden. How could it have sat there so long without being found? Uh, I'm not sure anybody's come up with a decent thesis on that yet. But if you consider that the bombs tended to be dropped by the uh, enemy aircraft in, in rounds of six, and sometimes one or two or three would not explode, But the fallout from the ones that did explode may well have created a kind of level of rubble over the ones that didn't explode. And and if a bomb had just gone straight through a couple of feet of earth and then the rubble had been cleared away and leveled, it may have been missed what lay beneath, if you see what I mean. Right. So, So this one was found, what, by the homeowner digging in the garden? As I understand it, there was uh, an extension being built to the property, and so they were digging to put foundations in, and that's when they they unearthed it. Lieutenant Colonel Rob Swan, who is leading the bomb removal operation tonight, said uh, that no one can rule out finding another device like this in Plymouth in the future. I guess people may be more on the lookout for them again, knowing this. Uh, how likely do you think it is that more will be found? Well, there's almost no doubt in my mind that because we sit at the mouth of two rivers, there are likely to be hundreds uh, just off the dockyard, in the water, off Plymouth Hoe, and in the uh, in the mouth of the River Plym. Uh, and these two rivers uh, are what Plymouth sits inside. And you've just got to look at the number of bombs that we know fell the other side of the dockyard and the military bases to know that there must be, logically, a lot in the water that uh, bomb disposal teams wouldn't have known about during the war. But as to whether they're in gardens or allotments or parkland, that is still eminently possible. Um, And it was only a few years ago that uh, there was a bomb found on uh, the site of the Navy, Army and Air Force Institute which was a post-war building, but when they took that post-war building down, they found a bomb on that site. 
So it's not unknown for bombs to be turning up in, in Plymouth. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's more still to come. Well, I'm pleased to hear that this all went off without incident today. It's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for taking us through it. You're very welcome, Helen. And they're they're looking at detonating it, they say, in the next 24 hours. I bet a lot of people will be watching for that very closely. Indeed. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Chris Robinson is a historian. We reached him in Plymouth, England. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Canada's top doctor has some timely medical advice for you and your family. Make sure you're up to date on your vaccinations, in particular for measles. As the spring break travel season approaches, Dr. Teresa Tam says she is concerned about a global surge in measles activity. We reached Dr. Tam in Ottawa. Dr. Tam, what is the number one message you want to get across to Canadians right now? Well, there's been a rising cases of measles, a very contagious uh, viral infection around the world. So my message to everyone in this country is to make sure you are fully vaccinated. Where are we seeing these cases globally? It's been seen in all regions of the world. And I think partly due to the fact that during the COVID-19 pandemic, Um, And many kids around the world may have missed their immunizations and countries trying to do catch up. But we're seeing it in all regions um, and including in Europe, where they reported a uh, quite concerning increase in cases and including in the United Kingdom. How many cases are we seeing in Canada? Last year, uh, we saw 12 cases reported. This year, uh, just from January to now, uh, the third week of February, really, we've already seen six. So we're only at the start of the year and just ahead of spring break. So we're predicting that we're just going to see more because of the uh, increase around the world. And we're already seeing this many. So My concern is that not only will we see it in the people who traveled, but it could spark outbreaks uh, within our communities. Hadn't measles been effectively eliminated in Canada before this? Measles is still uh, considered eliminated in Canada, so we don't have domestic transmission as such. So it will be due to um, travel-related cases and then a linked uh, outbreak as a result of that. Say, if people sort of um, think of it as a, a spark, if that spark lands in an area where the community is under-vaccinated or unvaccinated, that's where we will see the outbreaks. But we're still considered as sort of measles eliminated so far, but we'll really want to keep it that way. What should people do if they're uncertain about their vaccination status? 
Yes, I think if a family is about to travel and there's a good reminder, um, just a milestone, you should always check to make sure your vaccines are up to date, uh, including measles. But just ahead of travel, it's good to check that adults and kids are up to date and fully vaccinated. If you don't have any records, what we suggest is anyone born before 1970 get a dose of measles containing vaccine. And if you're born after 1970, when less measles is circulating, you need two doses. If you can't have any records, you don't know whether you've had measles before, having a dose is perfectly fine. It's better to do that ahead of being exposed in another country. For those born before 1970, if they know they had measles, do they still need to get that booster? Uh, if you're certain measles is what you had, uh, you probably don't need it, but we do recommend uh, one dose as a boost. But uh, in general, uh, well, the vaccine itself is extremely effective, close to 100%. I think it's, it's around 97% effective if you had two doses. And I think if you had past measles, in general, you are considered uh, immune for life. But uh, it's, it's just that rash-like illnesses occur due to many different causes. So you, you should be really certain that's what you had mm-hmm. if you're not going to get vaccinated. You said this is a very contagious virus. Can you set us sort of a, an example, like compare it to other things in terms of just how quickly it spreads? We think we would consider it the most contagious virus out of all the ones that we generally encounter. So very contagious. It's spread via the airborne route. So even if someone's left the room for the next couple of hours, a few hours, you could still get infected. Very contagious. Mm -hmm. So if anyone in that room is unvaccinated, they'll probably get it. How Uh, How bad can it be for someone who does contract it? Measles is not a mild illness, and it's particularly severe in kids under five. And for so, so adults over 20, so older people as well, but also for the immunocompromised people and uh, persons who are pregnant. But what uh, I'll just quickly describe what it might look like is for, for a child, they will look really sick. Um, and there's a rash that will develop. Um, I sort of liken it to pouring a can of red paint from your head down your body. So you'll start in the face, goes down to the rest of your body. Um, Red eyes, kid will be very irritable, maybe pulling at the ears because they could have an ear infection. But then the complications that can arise that lead people to end up in the hospital are pneumonia, but also um, at the even more serious end is uh, inflammation of the brain, which can lead to deafness or can lead to other neurological impacts. So it's something to be taken very seriously. What do you say to those who say, you know, natural immunity should kick in, they should expose their children? Because you do hear that from some people uh, these days. It's a very politicized issue as well. Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, the vaccines, millions and millions of doses have been used for many years around the world. We know is one of the most effective vaccines and its safety has been monitored for many years. So I think the key message is the benefit outweighs any risks of exposure and and, and the serious outcomes that could uh, ensue. 
In Canada, of course, because of the great efforts in the past, and we need to maintain that measles has been eliminated. You're not going to get exposed uh, very easily. But when you're traveling, of course, uh, you just don't know. Uh, and people can spread the uh, virus even before they become symptomatic. So um, in, in any case, I think the my key message is still to uh, get the vaccine because the benefit far outweighs any risks. Dr. Tam, thank you for your advice. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Teresa Tam is the Chief Public Health Officer at the Public Health Agency of Canada. We reached her in Ottawa. Nobody expected Canadian Hallie Clark to win the World Skeleton Championships in Germany today, including Hallie Clark. As talented as she is, the 19-year-old had failed to reach the podium in any World Cup event this season. Her goal going into this competition wasn't to medal, but just to make it to the top 10, until she found herself tied with the race leaders and poised for a win. This is a dream. It's surreal. Um, I came into this, you know, I only had the World Cup from last year in juniors and and it, they weren't my best races, but this is definitely a, a step up from that, and I'm beyond thrilled with it. Skeleton racer Hallie Clark talking to the International Bobsleigh and Skeleton Federation about her surprise win at the World Championships today, a win that makes her the sport's youngest ever world champ. Her history-making race is our sound of the day. And for gold, a dead heat. <laughs> And actually, after two more runs, a dead heat would be the perfect result. Hallie Clark, 19 years old versus 22-year-old Hannah Nassavi. Five, champion, a great start from Hallie Clark. Imagine how ready she is for this. How, wow. Well, her start, 34, 30, 29, 25. 25th. It's her chance. That's, that's the, the race of her life. I think it should be enough. Well, it may be enough to take the lead. Is it enough to beat Hannah Neiser, the local on the local track? For fastest speed, 130 kilometers per hour. It's medal she for Harry Clark. at least a silver medal, 56.93. Oh, my goodness. It's medal for Harry Clark. Wow. From earlier today in Winterberg, Germany, the race that made 19-year-old Brighton, Ontario native Hallie Clark the youngest ever world champion in women's skeleton. And that was our sound of the day. It started over two weeks ago, and just today, Winnipeggers got word that things may be getting back to normal. This afternoon came the announcement that they no longer needed to cut back on how much water they were using. They'd been asked to reduce their usage after a broken pipe spewed raw, untreated sewage directly into the Red River after a plan to bypass potential leaks failed. In total, about 228.4 million liters spilled into the river. Brian Mays is the city councillor for the St. Vital Ward in Winnipeg. We reached him there. 
Brian Mays, this leak began around February 7th. Uh, according to the city's website, it was still leaking as recently as yesterday. Um, the fact is, back in November, there were warnings that these pipes were in trouble. So why did it take the city so long to completely stop it? Well, back in November, there was a warning that one of the pipes was in trouble. So the city started to take steps to um, create this bypass pipe. Because uh, there was a second pipe that was still working. Unfortunately, as the bypass was being ready about Feb 7, then the other pipe started to give way. So you have this massive spill that's that's continued on for two weeks. In 2022, 2018, 2016, Winnipeg dumped raw sewage into the Red River because at that point the sewage system was just overwhelmed. So what is it going to take to stop this from happening every few years? We have had a number of different problems. Our combined sewer system in the older part of town has had issues, and that this isn't in an older part. This pipe is younger than I am. This pipe's uh, from 1970s. So I think it's just a matter of investing in the, the sewage infrastructure. It's not always something that gets headlines, or you know, people don't uh, people don't see it the way they do a new gymnasium. But it, it's an essential part of updating our infrastructure. So, in a way, it's an opportunity for us because this hopefully we'll be able to get some federal or provincial uh, cooperation and get some more money invested. Why has it been allowed to get this bad? I think I mean it's easy to point the finger at other levels of government, but. Um, I don't want to do that. Uh, and certainly the city of Winnipeg had a property tax freeze from 1998 to 2012. So there wasn't a lot of money being invested in a lot of capital projects. So I think we're we're starting in. We've invested more. We're, we've gone from 30 to $45 million a year on our combined sewer program. Our staff came up with a time frame to be done by 2095. And to the credit of the elected folks, we said, no, we're going to meet the provincial deadline of 2045. But that that just means another 15 million bucks a year has got to be found at least. We do have to sit down with, with the new government, I think, and the federal government in particular, and try and get some more infrastructure money. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess you can look at it as 2045 is way better than 2095, but it's still more than 20 years away. I, I, I don't understand why you're talking about such a, a large window of time. We've got a billion-dollar challenge at our North End plant. We've got to stop reducing phosphorus and nitrogen going into Lake Winnipeg. We've got a billion-dollar challenge with the combined sewers that are in the pre-1960 part of town. And then this, just sort of the everyday, you know, the monitoring. We probably do need to put some more money into monitoring to try and catch these problems before they happen or or earlier on, at least. But hasn't so, that been happening? You would think sewage monitoring would be a, a regular function of the municipal water and sewage services. Yeah, it it has been happening. It's seven hundred and ninety thousand uh, dollars of work. That's how we got this in November of twenty thirteen was a monitoring process. So, uh, and we are putting in almost another hundred million for another interceptor pipe down further south of this one. So, uh, by the end of the decade, we'll have this redundancy in place. This won't happen again at this site. Russ Wyatt, one of your fellow city councillors, introduced a motion last night calling for the city of Winnipeg to be fined $4 for every litre of sewage that spilled. That would be close to a billion dollars. What do you make of that? Uh, it's a national broadcast, so I should clarify our annual operating budget is only like $1.3 billion. So it's, frankly, it's a ridiculous uh, idea. And I, mean, I served on the executive with Russ and, and the fellow who seconded that motion. I was on the executive. I was on budget working groups with these people. 
I'm the only one I can remember ever putting forward ideas to increase uh, investments in sewer. I mean, um, it's good grandstanding, I suppose, by these guys on council. But I mean, this is a environmental problem. But, but you see the point but that he's making. This isn't he's the he's talking about accountability for the city. I mean, you've you've said to me that you want to meet with the new provincial government. You want more federal funding, but doesn't the city have some responsibility to to ensure that not only does this not happen again, but they clean this up pretty quickly? We're, we are putting millions. We're putting tens of millions. We're putting hundreds of millions toward this. It's it's a multi-billion dollar problem. You must be hearing from constituents. What are they telling you about this? Um, yes, I, I am. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, some are sympathetic, some are not sympathetic. Um, for a while, this was causing quite bad traffic delays. That problem's been solved. We've stopped the spill. I mean, I think people, the problem with the sewer issues is people, you announce these initiatives, nobody covers it, nobody notices it. Um, it's not like the running tracks of the gymnasiums or something, but, you know, I, I think people are realizing when we have these crises, hey, we've got to keep investing in this. You've been talking about money then for, for infrastructure improvements, for, for dealing with the, the problem at source, but what about the cleanup? I mean, this has left a terrible mess. Will the city also be contributing to cleaning up the mess? Well, I mean, it, it dilutes into the Red River is that is a massive river. As, you know, pe- people across the country may not know that, and it dumps into Lake Winnipeg, which is, I think, the 12th biggest freshwater lake in the world. But as um, I understand, it has an algae yeah. problem, and, and many people are saying that they depend on that river for water, for fishing, that sort of thing as well. How long do they have to wait? This is not the worst problem for, for Lake Winnipeg. That's the uh, what we need to get going on is the billion-dollar phosphorus and nitrogen removal up at the north end. And right now our budget for that is zero dollars. So I do think we have to sit down with the province and the feds and so you say gotta, that the, the, get a plan. the sewage will just disperse, basically. Yeah, I mean, there was some that what didn't go into the rivers. So that's obviously going to have to be cleaned up, and that's a civic responsibility. That's fair. But uh, in terms of the, the diluted sewage, yeah, it's it's gone into the red and, and will go downstream from there. And so we are hearing from the mayors of the small towns that are downstream, and they are not happy and say we should get better notification, and we're trying to work on that for the First Nations and for the mayors downstream. But, you know, it's not it's not that we make a light of this or slough it off. It's It's an environmental problem. The solution is costly, ultimately. Brian Mays, thank you for talking to us. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Brian Mays is a city councillor in Winnipeg. Are humans the worst? Well, it depends on how you look at it. If you do look at it, the answer is yes. For just one example, some of us keep a parrot as a pet, a beautiful, intelligent bird with an astonishing gift for mimicry. Do we, A, read that parrot great works of poetry and then return it to the rainforest so it can mutter the inspiring words of Mary Oliver and John Donne into the lush canopy? Or do we, B, repeat Alan is a jerk who stinks over and over at them in a funny voice and then invite Alan over. Now, you know it's always some version of that second one, except with swearing. 
as we heard last month from Steve Nichols, owner of Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in England, which had recently acquired three new swearing parrots to add to the five swearing parrots that already lived at the park. Not that any of that is the bird's fault, as Mr. Nichols explained to Neil. Originally, obviously, the human owners, uh, prior to them being donated to the sanctuary, they obviously got quite a lot of fun out of teaching them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that caused a little bit of embarrassment later on, especially for one or two people that actually dropped theirs off, uh, quite simply, when they arrived at the park and they said that, uh, unfortunately, they do say quite a lot of choice words and we do apologise. And she said, it's my husband uh, that's uh, taught them uh, uh-huh. most of the words. However, this particular species of parrots, when they learn from something or someone, they learn the identical pitch. So they don't only say the word, they say it in your voice. Mm-hmm. And while we were doing the paperwork, the parrot just happened to swear, and it swore in the lady's voice. Oh. And she went she, she went quite red when she heard <laughs> it and, and realised that she'd been caught. Busted. Uh, it wasn't her husband whatsoever. Steve Nichols also explained his plan to Neil. The park was going to put the profane parrots in with dozens of polite parrots. The hope was that the eight swearing parrots would become more like their non-swearing colleagues. The fear was that all the parrots would end up swearing. But this week, Mr. Nichols told the BBC that so far, after two weeks, decency is prevailing, saying we haven't heard any of the really crude language. Which is great, although he just means they haven't heard crude language from the parrots. Because he added, of course, people are still walking up to the parrot enclosure and swearing. Of course we are. We are the worst. It's not bad enough we have to flip each other the bird. We have to flip birds the bird, too. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helen Mann. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.